The scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. Go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, both good and bad, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. Friend, he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. This is God's word. This passage tells us that the mercy of God comes in really three forms. Uh, and it's mentioned at the top of this text here that Jesus spoke to them again. Now who's them? In chapter 21, you see the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the teachers of the law. This is the, these are the religious insiders. They come to Jesus and they say, by what authority do you say these things, do you do these things? And what they mean by that is, listen, we paid a price. We paid a price. We earned our way to the top of the religious pecking order. And we did it through moral righteousness. We have our doctrine down. We went to the right school and got the right degrees. We got the right approvals and the validation from all the right communities. Who do you think you are to do this? And Jesus tells this story, saying really that the kingdom of God is about mercy. It's about mercy. And here's how you get it. Mercy comes in three forms. One, it's the king's call. Two, it's the king's covering. And thirdly, it's the king's feast. The king's call or his invitation. Secondly, the king's covering or his clothing. And lastly, the king's feast. And it's fitting because the series is called Dining with the King. And through these feasts that we study, we learn a lot more about who Jesus is, his character and his work. So first, we're going to go into the call. Verses 1 to 5. Originally, uh, the king uh, in this story, uh, in this narrative, this parable, now parables, just to say a little bit about parables, parables are intended to share a truth. They're told by Jesus to share a truth that would shock any listener who is listening to Jesus in his day. And so here's this passage about a king who has a son who's getting married. And as a result, he's going to throw a tremendous banquet on behalf of his son. And it's an amazing experience. And what he does is he sends these messengers out. And who does he send them out to? If you look in verse 3, he sent his servants to those who have been invited to the banquet to tell them to come. In other words, they were already invited. They're already invited, but he invites them again. He tells them to come again. Why does he do that? It takes 
a long time to prepare a banquet, a feast like this. It takes days, for that matter, for people to come to a banquet such as this. These people have already responded. They said, yes, we're going to do this. They've already made reservations. Now, these messengers, they're really what they're doing is they're just going out to announce and to remind everybody who's responded that it's time to get dressed and come to the banquet. But they don't. They don't show up. Now, before I go on, we have to bring this home to our hearts for a second. Who's he talking to? Jesus is talking to the religious insiders. So when you're baptized, whether as an infant or as an adult, you're mainly saying, I'm coming. I've made a reservation. You've made it public. But have you really come? Have you really come? When you join a church, what you're saying is, I've made a reservation. I'm coming. But have you really come? Every time you take the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be doing together today, do you know what you're doing? You're receiving an invitation, and you're making a reservation, and you're making it public, and you're saying, I'm coming. But have you come? See, a lot of us are religious insiders. We're baptized. We take the Lord's Supper every time it's offered. Some of us join the leadership team in this church Some of us actually are in seminary. There are quite a few people who attend seminary here in this community. Each one of you, what you're doing is you're saying, I've received the invitation, and I'm responding to to the invitation. I'm saying, I'm coming. But have you come? But have you really? These people never come. And why not? In verse 5, it's very clear why not. They decided that what they had, one person's got a field, he's a landowner, another person has a business, Whatever it is, they have things that are much more important than this wedding to attend, the king's wedding, and so they pay no attention. They absolutely pay, they just completely disregard the invitation. And verse 5 says they didn't care. They saw what was offered. It wasn't good enough to take them away from all the things that they were preoccupied by, and as a result, they were indifferent. And that's what you see in verse 6. Verse 6, you see that there's an indifference. And that verse 6 shows that underneath that indifference, there's a hostility that resides there. These people, the servants go out. The rest of these people seize the servants. They mistreat the servants, and they kill the servants. Incredibly harsh. And so verse 7, if you think verse 7 is extreme, you have to think about this for a second. If we have an embassy, for those of you in government, politics, military, you understand this. If we have an embassy, an embassy sits in a foreign land as a representation, a representative of diplomacy of their mother country. If you have a foreign embassy out there, and, you know, they're really servants, they're representatives. What if one night that embassy gets stormed and everybody in that embassy these servants who carry their message are slaughtered. Do you think it's excessive to go to war? Of course not. It's an act of war to do those kind of things. So how do you know that you're called? How do you know that you're responding to the call? You respond to the call with delight. You come with delight because you've been invited by the king. What we're being told here is that you can be, on the, you can be a person on the outside who says, I'm coming. I'm going to come. You may have given your life in a formal way, but on the inside, there's no celebration. On the inside, there's no feasting. You're not just indifferent. You're actually resistant. 
You're hostile. Why? Because it's, your, it's a way of actually saying, listen, for me to do this, for me to come to the banquet, no one can tell me how to run my life. And so you reject the invitation. You deny, you ignore the invitation. The mercy of God comes first with a call, with an invitation, a call. Anybody who comes, they come because they're called. These people don't. Later on, you see another group of people. We're going to get to that. We're going to see another group of people. They do come. They're called and they absolutely come. What does this tell you? The first point, nobody comes to the king's feasts unless there's an invitation and a calling. The first group gets the call, they don't respond. The second group gets a call, they do respond. There's no group that ever responds without there ever being a call. Do you see that? Now we're going to apply this for a second. I'm going to give you a warning and I'm going to give you a comfort. First, the warning, the bad news. A lot of us here are still trying to figure out what to believe about Christianity. Maybe somebody brought you here. Maybe somebody referred you here. You had some kind of a religious background growing up. Maybe in the church, perhaps. But you stepped away for some amount of time for some reason. But now you're here and you're starting to reassess. What is this about Christianity? What is it that I actually believe? And you're feeling a a sense, a, a tug, a presence. You're feeling a call. And I want to remind you that, listen, God is patient. God is good. God is loving, God is kind, but, but he wouldn't be good without asking you to first think about it, without asking you to first count the costs of coming. It takes some time. But don't postpone your indifference. Don't postpone indefinitely, and here's why. You can't come whenever you want. You can't come on your own terms. If somebody comes up to you and says, I'm going to throw a party with my closest friends, people that I'm the most intimate with. And it's going to be an amazing meal. Maybe like a wedding. It's going to be an amazing meal. I'm going to throw, I'm going to pour finances, maybe to the point where it's going to hurt my income or my year. How do you respond? Do you respond and you say, well, I'm going to show up, you know, the week after? Is that what you do? You either say, yes, I'm coming, and you show up, or you don't come. You miss the boat. Um, For someone to say, you know, I'd like to have God, but I'm not sure if I want to have God right now. I've got a lot of things going on in my life. Um, Maybe I'll come back to him later. Um, I hear he's always going to be there, so I'll come back to him later. Um, what's, What's this text telling us? This text is telling us you can't come whenever you want. You can't come on your own terms. There may not be a later. Mercy is now. And you're only coming because of mercy. You're only coming because of God's grace. You're only coming because there's a joy, because of the feast, because of the invitation, because of the call. A dead man, a dead man can't say, you know, I think I'm going to get up now. He can't do that. He can't get up now. In fact, even if a person says, I think I'm dead, he's not. You know why? Because he's able to think. He still has life in him. If you're feeling dead spiritually, you have to really pay attention to this. If you're, if you're feeling dead spiritually, you're still feeling something. There's life there. Don't let it go. It's an opportunity. Every day is an opportunity to respond to the invitation. If there is a God and he can, co- he can hold and control the universe with his word and he can sustain every star and every molecule, billions of stars and every creature at his word, And he is calling you. Don't say, not yet. I'm not quite ready. Wait. 
To say, I'm not going to come until I'm ready, is to bow down to something else that's become more important. Don't you see that? You've got something that's more important, something that's more urgent. One of my favorite books in the Bible is Haggai. It's only two chapters. It's a very, very small book. Um, And in this passage, in this book, uh, the first chapter of Haggai, God is uh, telling the prophet to tell the people that it's taking way too long. They, they had just come out of slavery. And the first, one of the first things they were called to do was to rebuild their temple. Rebuild the temple so that they can come and worship God. To have a place. And, and God calls out to them and he says, it is taking you way too long. I believe it's taken them 15 years and they're not anywhere close to finishing and the temple doesn't look any better than it did the last time the temple was built before it was destroyed. It was a shadow of the old temple and yet it's taking them way longer. And he says, it's because you are so much more concerned with the paneling in your homes. Maybe it's your children. Maybe you're building something. Maybe you're building your own home. Maybe it's about getting married, or maybe it's about progressing your career. Maybe that's the paneling in your home. Maybe it's your guilt. And you're saying, I've got to build myself up. I've got I to clean myself up before I come back. Don't postpone. Respond to the call. That's the bad news. You can't wait indefinitely. But there is a comfort. When a person says, you know, I'm having a hard time coming because I'm worried I'm going to screw up. I'm not going to keep up. It's been so hard to live right, to do right, and I've been struggling, and I'm weak, and I'm always weak, and I'm around all these people who are so nicely dressed. I I don't measure up. I'm going to fall down. I just know it. Don't forget this. Every bit of the Christian life, all your good desires, even your fears, even the fears that you have in your life right now, it's a gift of God. These are gifts from God. Take your fears. Only by God's love would you be scared. Would you even fear? You're not getting mercy by keeping up. You keep up only by mercy, only by grace. Do you get that? You know, what that means is some of us here are striving in all the wrong ways. We're working and we're laboring and we're sweating and we're just pouring out. And we're just striving and striving and striving. We're just running hard. And we're doing it because we need acceptance and because we need love. And it comes in the form of promotions. It comes in the form of maybe something as simple as a pat on the back. It comes in the form of degrees. And it comes in the form of salaries. And it comes in the form of of the number of children that you have and how healthy they are and how well they're doing. Look, you need to stop working for a sense of worth. You need to stop trying to prove yourself to God. That's what you're doing. It's cosmic. These things are cosmic in nature. Everyone's got the same experience in life, the same struggle in life because they're trying to work to justify themselves. And as a result, you're killing yourselves. God never overworks you. By the way, that's the reason why we gossip. Many of us were driven by our gossip. It's a subtle way. Gossip is our way of saying, I'm okay. It's a way of proving that you're okay because look at that group of people or look at that person. Look at what they are doing that. Oh my gosh. That's not how mercy comes. Mercy comes through a call. Respond to the call. That's the first point. The second point is the dress, the clothing, the covering. Verse 8, commentators all across the board, whether you're a liberal commentator or uh, a, a conservative commentator, I find that they're all confused about this um, because it looks all of a sudden like the king is changing his standards, right? That's what it looks like. The first group they're invited you got landowners, you got wealthy people, you got the high social order. 
They're invited. They're the kind of people you would expect to see. They're the kind of people that you would want to see, you would inv- that would be invited to the king's feast. Now he says to the servants, let's change our strategy. We're going to go out to the street corners. And the street corners are really these places, these intersections leading into the city because the city, you know, suburbs, one road, one traffic light, Right? But as they get into the city, it just branches out into all these arteries. The city is huge. It's teeming with people back then. We're seeing a resurgence of the city in our world today. Right, right now, 50% of, this, of the world's population lives in the biggest cities, a few of the biggest cities in the world. Right? So you have these arteries and veins. It's a body. And in these marketplaces, in these corners, these intersections, you have lots of people, people from different countries, different ethnicities, different languages, rich, poor, educated, uneducated. You have all the, it's, a, it's, a, it's an organism. And the king says, I want you to go there into those public squares. And so he sends these servants out, and instead of bringing in this high social order, this time he brings everybody. And that only doesn't mean, that, that, just, that doesn't only mean that there's diversity from an economic standpoint, diversity from a social standpoint, from an ethnic standpoint here, from a language standpoint here, a cultural standpoint, but also from a moral standpoint. It's no longer just a refined social culture that's coming in. It's the unrefined social culture that's coming in. These are the morally low, and this is the king. This is God who invites his people into the wedding feast of his son, Jesus Christ, who invites both the good and the bad. And he gets rid of the standards altogether. Now anyone can come to the feast. And it's free, and it's wonderful, and it tastes good. You're dining with the king. You're dining with the son. And it's a beautiful story until you get to the appendix. These last few verses from 11 to 14, very, very strange. Here's one man, he walks in. And the king's walking around, just like in a wedding feast, he's meeting and greeting the guests. But he notices an awkward individual in that crowd because he's not dressed properly. He's not wearing wedding clothes. Now, why do you need to wear expensive clothes to enter into an occasion like this? Whenever somebody does the honor of inviting you into something that's really at the heart of that person, and he's pouring out to the expense, to a great cost, to have people come in. People dress up. Think about any function like that. People tend to dress up. Right? So this person kind of stands out. These people are always dressed up, and they go to distance to show their honor and respect for the person, but this man... He thought whatever he had on was enough. Whatever he was wearing at that moment was good enough. He didn't need to change. And so when the king asks, he goes up to him and he says, how'd you get in here without wearing the proper clothes, I might ask? The man had no answer. He said the man was speechless. He had no answer. Now there's two good reasons why, that you could have for not having the right clothes on. One, one, the first is obvious. I didn't have a chance I mean, these servants were just coming in, and I'm in the public square wearing what, doing whatever I was doing. They said, come to the king's feast. Everyone is invited, and I just came. I just showed up. I didn't have the proper clothes. The second reason is I didn't have one because I couldn't afford one. I don't own one. This man clearly didn't have any answer. It said he didn't have either of those answers. He was speechless. And here's the reason why he was speechless. If you look carefully here, you're going to see, you know, in verses 3 to 4, the original guests that were invited, they were invited a second time as a reminder. In other words, they were ready. They just didn't come. But here the servants, they went out to see streets. They gathered everybody. 
These people weren't making reservations. They just came right in. So they couldn't possibly be ready, maybe by chance, but they couldn't possibly be ready to have their own wedding garments with them. So the first group, you know, they, because they came right in, um, they, they couldn't go home, right? Um, yeah, the first reason, I mean, they just came right in. They couldn't go home. But the second reason why is because they, they were poor. They didn't afford the clothes. They couldn't afford the clothes. They didn't have clothes. The king must have provided clothes for both. The king must have provided at the door. If you didn't have proper clothing on, the king will give you his clothes. He will give you the garments. And the thing is, nobody had the proper clothing on. Everybody who enter, entered came in from the public square, out of the heat, out of the dust. They didn't have the proper clothes. And so they closed them at the door. This is the key. They clothed them at the door. At the king's expense. The king's the one that's not only pouring out for the feast. He says, you know what? We're going to change our strategy. If we're going to get these guys in, we're going to dress them so they look proper, so that they are righteous. That's what we're going to do. We're going to don them with our adornments. That's what we're going to do. We're going to take off their bad clothing. We're going to take off their improper clothing, and we're going to dress them. That's what he's saying. This man, he clearly couldn't say at the door, I don't have the right clothing on. I didn't have a chance to get the right clothing. Nobody did, but he couldn't be honest. And so he's thrown out. And it says he's thrown out into the darkness, literally the deep darkness. That's where he's thrown out. He's cast out into the darkness. That's an amazing text here. Incredibly confusing um, because the commentators struggle with this. But if you think about this, the expense. This is the king shedding and pouring out infinite expense just to bring these people in. That means your record means nothing. Your wealth means nothing. Your socioeconomic background means nothing. Your status and your pedigree mean nothing. You remember Mark chapter 5? In Mark chapter 5, you have two vignettes here. You have, it starts out, Mark chapter 5, verse 21 to 43. You, it begins with uh, this man who's a religious leader, a synagogue ruler, which means that he was wealthy. He comes to Jesus with an acute condition. My daughter is on the verge of death. You have to come and help her. He had enough belief in there to say, you have to come and help, help this, my child. So Jesus makes his way, and as he's making his way through the crowd, there's a woman, destitute, poor, and outcast, probably hasn't even been in to worship because of her condition of bleeding for 12 years. It wasn't an acute condition. It was a chronic condition. She could have waited several hours. She's waited for 12 years. She comes in barely getting to Jesus, reaches out and says, if I could just touch his clothes. Her theology wasn't right. Her thought process wasn't right. She reaches out, if I could just touch his clothing. And instantly, she's the one healed. And Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? He pauses. And so he heals this woman and affirms her in front of everybody and says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Meanwhile, Jairus' daughter dies. Jesus is always looking at the outcast, always looking at the people who are not pretty, who are not, not right, not proper, not theologically correct. This woman was not ready, wasn't dressed. She just came. And she had power as a result. How much status do you think she had? She was an outsider. But Jesus stopped. Instead of helping the wealthy, well-dressed person first, who had a much more urgent situation, she stops to help this woman, the outsider. 
You come into the feast of the sun, not acting fit, but rather admitting that you're not fit. Not acting like you have it together, but actually admitting that you don't have it together. And you ask the Lord, you say, you come in and say, what I've got here, these are rags. It's never going to get me in there. I'm never going to fit in there. I don't look right. I don't know right. I don't have right. You come to the Lord and he will clothe you. Look, a lot of us say, you know, I don't really believe in a God of wrath. What you're saying here, the deep darkness, that doesn't sit right with me. You know, I really like to believe in a God of, rather than a God of wrath who punishes people, I like to believe that God accepts everyone just as they are. So I really like that when you say, hey, you can come as you are. And if you believe that, you're really coming in without the right wedding garments on. Look at the world. What hope is there? You got cruelty, you got evil, you got oppression, you got injustice. And you don't even have to walk a block here to see that. Just look in your own home. There's cruelty, there's disrespect, dishonor, oppression. If you have a God that says, you know what, I, live every, I just love everybody just as they are, what hope is there? There's no justice then. That means evil wins. If even one sin is left unpaid, evil wins. Evil's got a chance. Who cares about that kind of love? Who'd want that kind of treatment? If you walk into a doc, doctor's office and they say, friend, you've got a tumor and it's coursing through, but we're going to wipe this thing out. And they just wipe everything. They do their best. They just pour into this person to wipe everything out. And they say, yeah, we're going to leave a few cells behind it. We're good. We're good. Would you be happy with that? Friends, you would find that to be the most urgent and critical condition you could be in. Who would want that kind of love? That's not a love you need. That's not a love you want. That's not even love. A biblical God gives us hope because on one hand, he says, not a single evil will go unpaid. Unlike traditional religion, Jesus says, you can't earn your place in the kingdom. You can't earn mercy. Mercy comes through a call. But unlike the modern view, God loves at all costs, at a tremendous cost to himself. He pays the price. Unconditional love proved to us at an infinite cost. You can't go in with these clothes, Jesus says. Jesus says, I will clothe you. The king will pay at infinite cost for you. So if you go right in to God just as you are, it's the same as saying, I don't really need this. I'm good as I am. You're going to be thrown out. You're going to be thrown out into the deep darkness. And here's how you know. You don't have to wait to the end for that. You already lack joy in your life. You don't have joy. The darkness is already starting to spread in your life like a tumor. There's confusion when people call you out. There's anxiety when people call you out. You want to you work even harder to cover it up, to make it look like you're getting better. That's what you're doing. You're living in deep-rooted anger, and that anger is darkness, and it's growing. There's a bitterness that's growing in your life. Are you thrilled and amazed that, it, that you could come to one place every week and listen to a word that's been around since the beginning of time, in a sense, and read it and still be moved by that. To say that I can't believe that God would actually come to me and speak to me. Are you amazed by that? Are you captivated by that? You see what's happening here? The first group, they're smug. I, I know this stuff. I took a class on this stuff. 
whether it's college or seminary. I know this stuff. I've heard this okay. I'm good. In fact, I want to bring my friend because she needs to hear this stuff. You're coming in, you would have said, oh, you know, some of us are like, well, I'll I'll wait a little bit. I'm going to wait to come. I can wait a while. I got some things to take care of. Once I'm in the right place, once I'm in a good place, then I'll come in here for this. I'm going to get my act together first. Unless you have a deep gratitude and a joy, you're going to be thrown into the deep darkness. This is a holy God. This is a holy God. And though he invites us as we are, he will clothe us with an infinite cost to himself and his son who died to clothe us, to cover over our sins. If you believe that, if you embrace that, if you're astounded by the idea of mercy and grace, that will shape you. Now, many of us say, well, I like that free part. I just, I like what you just said. I like that free part, you know, being invited. Many others say, well, I really like that costly part. You know, I like that part, you know, that the costly part where somebody needs to pay. The gospel teaches that it's neither of those and both of those. It's not just free and it's not just costly. It's both. It's free for us, but it came at infinite cost to God. You know, this world, we are so wicked. We are so sinful. We are so lost. You could be serving your heart out of church and still the darkness still grow. There's a sadness there, right? We are so naked to be thrown into the darkness unless we will be thrown into the darkness unless we're clothed by Christ, with Christ, his royal garments, what he did for you. If you don't believe that, your life will never be changed. You will never change. If you're constantly working, so that obeying so that you will be accepted by God, your life will never change. That darkness will continue to grow. And that's why there's great confusion because you're having a hard time coming to grips with that. How could I be doing this? I have, you know, what, what, the indications, the symptoms show you that you've been doing this all your life. And so there's no joy and there's, if anything, growing anger and unrest and anxiety and bitterness and complaining and grumbling and fear and constant striving, striving and laboring. How can, I mean, it can't possibly be. I thought I was saved as a child, we say. Listen, you know, Charles Spurgeon, he was a Baptist preacher that lived in London in the 1800s. And in one of his sermons, he says, you always want beggars at a feast. You want that in your life. Proper people like to sit down. And then when the food comes in, they go, (laughs) my servants, uh, they do much better than this. I hate wedding meals. Wedding meals is always the same, you know, two or three choices, you know, and it's, it's all done the same way. So it's like, you know, rubber chicken and like rubber steak. Everything's rubber, right? That's how it is, right? He's, he's, these people, they come in, they say, oh, this is, you know, this is whatever. I'd rather have what I have at home. But beggars, they sit around at a table together. They go, oh, you're here too? Oh, you're here too? You're here too? Oh, yeah, I'm here. I don't know what happened, you know, and they, they sit around and the entree comes out and they go, there's hors d'oeuvres. What does that mean? What are hors d'oeuvres? There's hors d'oeuvres. These people come around with, with, with cheesesteak egg rolls. That's amazing. In this city, there's cheesesteak egg rolls, right? You know, they go, whoa, hooray, there's turkey, right? That's what they say. Are you shaped by the mercy of God in a way that it brings you joy? Look at the size of that entree. That is huge. And, and there are no bite marks on it. I didn't have to rummage through the trash to pull it out. This is unbelievable. 
or do you take it for granted? You scoff at people at church. You're clothed with pride, and you can't shed it. It hurts to shed it. A lot of things that we shed hurt to shed. You know, you, know, you ever read that part in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia? You know, the, what is it, Edmund? He's got dragon skin on, and so he's peeling the skin, and uh, it doesn't go deep enough, so the skin just grows back, and he still stays a dragon because the dra- the, he becomes a dragon because of his greed. And so Aslan, the Jesus figure, comes in, and what does he do? He starts tearing away chunks of his flesh, and he thinks, this lion's crazy. This lion's going to kill me, right? But there he found his skin, and he became a boy again. The transformation comes sometimes through tremendous pain, tremendous pain sometimes. Whatever it's going to take for Aslan to unclothe you of your pride and your self-reliance, You know there's an African-American who grew up Baptist in this congregation, right? You know that, right? <laughs> I love you. I love you, brother. Um, is your first inclination when you're caught in sin to be defensive, to justify yourself? Then you're not going in with the proper dress. Or are you coming in clothed in shame? You feel like you're always, everything you say is worthless. You're coming in with your self-reliance because it makes you feel inadequate to see people who've had it together around you. You know, Jean-Paul Sartre, famous philosopher, one of his, my favorite writing from Jean-Paul Sartre, he was a secular man, um, but he writes a very incredible uh, dissertation about a keyhole. And in this keyhole, he says, I look through this keyhole, and there I see the figure of a woman, a beautiful woman. And slowly she starts to disrobe. And she looks beautiful, and he starts to describe her features. Incredible figure. And the best part about it is I get to look through this keyhole and see her, all of her, all of her imperfections, all of her flaws, and yet all of her glory, all of her, her entire figure. And she has no idea. She has no idea. And so it gives me a sense of power because I get to point out all that is beautiful about her and all that is flawed about her, and she will never know. And then Sartre writes, and then a great wave of fear came over me because I find myself naked and lo and behold behind me, there is a keyhole. Is that why there's pride? Is that why to cover over our shame and our iniquities? You need real clothing. We all come in naked. We all come in broken. We've all got imperfections and flaws because of our sin. Mercy is the covering. Last point, very quick. Mercy is a feast. What's intriguing about this passage is the only person who's thrown out in this passage is not a bad person. There's no indication whether he's a good person or a bad person. There's no indication that, you know, he's humiliated to, uh, that he's humble or, 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 or anything like that. But one thing we know is that he had enough pride to not be able to come before the king because he's the king and he feels so low and to cover over that he didn't feel the need to be able to come before the king and say I'm I'm not ready to come in because I don't have I don't have the right clothing on the only person the only thing that really cast him out was that he wasn't happy to take the clothes he feels he's okay enough he feels like he could get by that's the irony that's the twist that's the shocker in this parable The passage says that if you have no feast in your life, if there's no astonishment to the gospel of grace, 
Meaning every good thing that you get, getting into a good college, a college of your choice, getting into the grad school that's going to catapult your career, getting the right job, or finding somebody who loves you, or finally beholding your child, seeing them succeed, having people around you who love you. If you're not grateful for that, if you're, if you're not weeping with joy because of that, it's not because you're bad. It's actually because you think you're so good. You think you're so good, you deserve it. It's your goodness that's keeping you from taking the clothing. You think you're clothed enough, well enough. It's things that make you feel good enough that's, keeping, that's really keeping you at a distance from God. The reason that you're not cheering every plate is because you feel like you deserve it. You've already had it. You already know it. You feel like you deserve better sometimes. And that's the reason why many people are bitter in front of God because life doesn't go their way, because they feel like they've lived a good life, because they feel like they have obeyed. In other words, what you're really saying is, you know, where is God? I mean, I'm do- I've been living a good life. My family lives a good life. And then this had to happen. God owes me. That's really what you're saying. God owes me. I deserve to be at that feast. And I'm not tasting the joy. I'm not tasting the goodness. I'm not savoring the richness. Look at that guy. He's not as intelligent as me. He's not as good-looking as me. He's not as sociable as me. But his life is so much better. What you're really saying is, I've done my part. You owe me. And it saps you of joy because you're looking at your own goodness and you're comparing your dress with other people's dress. And you're saying, I've got better clothes than that guy. I definitely, he's looking around and he's saying, hey, we're all invited, but my clothes are definitely better than his. Lo and behold, he doesn't realize they're getting clothed by the king. They're getting clothed. Do you see what Christ has done for you? If you see that, then you will cheer every plate. You will celebrate everything about the gospel. The whole life, all the struggles make sense because it's led you to a point where you come to enter and dine with the king. Your whole life becomes a feast. Every other religion, every other philosophy, it's all about merit. It's all about working. It's all about earning. It's all about striving and laboring. Jesus compares Christianity. Remember this. Jesus compares Christianity to a feast. Every other religion, every other philosophy, it's about trying harder. Jesus Christ compares Christianity to a feast. And in ancient times, it meant even more because to dine with the king is to say that you are intimate with the king. You are personal with the king. And if he's pouring out on top of that to dress you, that means he loves you. That means he embraces you. That means he wants you to look like him. He's making sure that you look just like him to to make sure that there's no inadequacy, no insecurity, no comparing. Everyone's dressed the same together and we get to so that the joy of being there is the joy, the celebration of being invited before the king and his son and his wedding banquet. It's about the king who says, the only, only those who are dressed by me can enter. I've paid the ultimate price for you to enter. Jesus Christ, he was a servant, the greater servant, who came to a people that he loved, who've been invited, reminding them the kingdom of God has come. Will you come? And the people rejected him. John chapter 1, it says, he came to those that which were his own. And yet his own did not receive him. Even his own, those he loved, did not receive them. They rejected him. Jesus Christ was seized. Jesus Christ was mistreated. And Jesus Christ was killed. Jesus Christ, clothed in honor, clothed in glory as the heir to God's kingdom, the Son of God, 
on his baptism, the heavens opened up. The Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven rang out, This is my Son, whom I loved, clothed in God's love. God doting on his Son before people. And yet the Bible says, in Philippians chapter 2, it says, He emptied himself. Isaiah, the book of Isaiah 53 says, There's nothing about him that would make you attracted to him as a man. He emptied himself. In other words, Jesus Christ was stripped naked before going to the cross. And on the cross, he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Which means, now I'm experiencing, I'm rejected by men. They're spitting at him. They're clothing him in spit. They're clothing him with, with mockery and scoffing. But he says, now I'm experiencing the ultimate rejection, the ultimate nakedness, because that which was one with me has left me, and now I have no clothing. The wrath of God is being poured out on me, and I have nothing, not even a, not even a layer of clothing, to mediate me for me. I am taking it all on. It's pouring out on me, and he was cast out into the deep darkness. Do you know that on the cross, a darkness fell over the land? Jesus Christ was being cast out into the deep darkness. Did you know that? And yet on the cross, do you know what he's doing on the cross? He's talking to a thief, unclothed. And he says, today you will be with me in paradise. He's responding at the very last minute. Will you clothe me? He says, yes, you will be clothed. Do you get that? Do you see that? Jesus suffered the ultimate nakedness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to become sin. He was clothed in sin so that we would become, we would be clothed with the righteousness of God. Do you see that? It's because Jesus was laboring. Jesus was struggling. Jesus entered the deep darkness, working and laboring for you so that you can rest, so you could be dressed. Jesus experienced the deep darkness, or darkness so that you can enter his feast. So will you come to the feast? We're going to come before a feast today. Maybe you can say, you know, today I hear the call, I'm coming. Today the penny is dropped. Today the other shoe is chopped. Whatever proverb you want to use. Today, I'm coming to the feast. Will you taste of the Lord? Because you're going to see that he is good. We're going to, in a few moments, we're going to be dining together in a physical way as a representation of entering into the feast with the king, the Lord's Supper, the meal. We're going to experience the intimacy of dining with the king. I want you to cheer every taste. The bread's going to come by. I want you to cheer the bread. The wine's going to come by. I want you to cheer the wine. Every taste. And act as a beggar before the feast of the king. Will you do that? What I like to do as I pray, I'd like to invite my, uh, a spiritual father of mine who just served with me this past week in our summer missions at camp and I've known him since 1989 through his words and through his, really, uh, growing up without a father, you naturally look for father figures. The Reverend Jack Hager has been a father figure of mine for most of my childhood 
into adulthood, came to my wedding in the midst of 36 inches of snow, and celebrated in a meal with me and my wife. I'm grateful for him as a spiritual father, and he, will, uh, he has been invited really to be able to share and preside over this feast that we get to have with the king. Will you come? Let's pray together.